Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. How do you create a life's legacy? If you've ever had a bite of Chef Frank Brightston's authentic Creole cooking, you've tasted it. Frank is here with the whole story of how he created a culinary legacy in a little cottage just off of River Road. And if you were ever fortunate enough to imbibe in a drink crafted by legendary British bartender Dick Bradsell, you certainly had a sip of his legacy. Sadly, Dick passed away in 2016, but his daughter, B. Bradsell, is busy carrying on in her dad's footsteps, and she's here with the whole story. Over at Turkey and the Wolf, you'll find legacy in the making as that brash, bold, fearless Mason Hereford is hard at work creating a legacy that in part has helped turn fine dining on its ear. The best part is no one is more surprised by success than Mason. He's back to tell us all about it. We're exploring legacy making from every angle on this week's Louisiana Eats. Hi, I'm Frank Brightson from Brightson's Restaurant in Uptown New Orleans. When it comes to authentic Creole food, Chef Frank Brightson's cooking stands in a class of its own. Here in his hometown of New Orleans, there are few chefs held in higher esteem. From 1978 through the early 80s, Frank earned his culinary stripes in the kitchens of Commander's Palace and Cape Hall's, working under the watchful eye of Paul Prudhomme. Since opening Brightston's restaurant in 1986, Frank has built on his mentor's legacy, winning over diners with his command of Creole dishes, all presented without a hint of pretension. Over the last four decades, both Frank and his namesake restaurant have racked up countless accolades. Most recently, Frank was honored with the 2022 Ella Brennan Lifetime Achievement in Hospitality Award. We asked the legendary chef to join us in the studio to look back at his 50-year career in hospitality and learn what led to his life in food. Well, I was born on Napoleon Avenue at Southern Baptist, so let's start there, and uh, raised in River Ridge, uh, what is now River Ridge. And my earliest restaurant memory is sitting in my high chair and my mom peeling me boiled crabs at Charlie Seafood on Jefferson Highway. And I remember going out to eat regularly. Um, we loved Sclafani's. That was our Sunday supper, uh, where I'd get a Roy Rogers and spaghetti and meatballs and garlic bread. 
you know, mom was a great cook. Uh, interestingly, she was from Alabama and came to New Orleans to go to nursing school and met my father after the war. He's, you know, New Orleans boy through and through. So she learned how to make red beans and rice and gumbo and oyster dressing, and um, <laughs> they were all just so good, you know. And those flavors and memories, they're, they're emotional memories. And I think that's what signifies Louisiana cooking is that emotional attachment to certain dishes. Frank's first foray into the restaurant world came in 1973. As a freshman studying fine arts at LSU in Baton Rouge, he worked at a sandwich shop to help pay the bills. Next stop was a pasta place where he made a home for himself in the back of the house. And when I moved back to New Orleans, I realized that I liked being in the kitchen. And uh, I had a job as a prep cook, and then I, I quit that one. And uh, the apartment I was living in got sold, so they evicted me. Um, my car broke down, so I made that fateful call to mom, can I come home? <laughs> and I was 24 years old, so I went back home to kind of recover and regroup, and uh, one day I picked up the newspaper, and there was a classified ad, Help Wanted, Commander's Palace, now hiring Creole chefs or people willing to learn Creole cuisine. And that was me. I wanted to learn. I wanted to step up to fine dining and really learn this trade. And um, so I had mom drive me down to my interview. <laughs> A little awkward. Um, and she waited outside while I went in. This was the fall of 1978, just three years after the first non-European chef was chosen to run the kitchen at Commander's. Paul Perdome was the executive chef there. Um, I knew that because I remember seeing it on the front page of the Times-Picayune when Ellen Dick Brennan hired him. That was a bold move uh, to hire a Cajun boy as executive chef of a prominent restaurant. When you went for that very first interview, how did it feel when you hit the door that very first time? Do you remember? Oh, I do. I had knots in my stomach. Um, you know, I had food service experience, but not, nothing like Commander's. To me, Commander's Palace was the cathedral of cuisine in New Orleans. And I knew it was a huge step up, but I really did feel ready. But, I, you know, I, I was awkward, I'm sure. Um, Paul looked at my resume, and Chef Paul Miller, the sous chef, looked at it together, and Paul said to Paul Miller... Um, he doesn't have any, you know, fine dining restaurant experience, but he's got basics, and I think he has potential. He said, Frank, I'm going to give you a chance, uh, and you have a choice. Uh, we'll, we'll hire you as a broiler chef and put you on the front line and pay you good money and expect a lot out of you. Or you can start in the pantry making very little money but you can expect a lot out of me. And that's what I chose, of course. And uh, that was the beginning. For the next six months, Frank had the opportunity to work every station in the house at Commander's, gaining an on-the-job culinary education along the way. I started in the pantry doing desserts and salads and cold appetizers and 
you know, I got trained by Steve and Gamble. And then after two days, Steve left me on my own. It wasn't until months later that I found out there was a two-person station. The <laughs> <laughs> same thing when I went on Sauté. One Sunday morning, uh, you know, Commander's Jazz Brunch, there was a schedule, new schedule put up, and two Sauté chefs didn't show up for work. So the other chef, Jay Blair, kept saying, Frank, you know how to make an omelet? I said, nope. Every 10 minutes, Frank, you know how to make an omelet? Nope. <laughs> Frank, you run omelets. So he put me on saute station on a Sunday brunch. And that's where I learned how to shake a skillet. And as is typical in the restaurant business, you know, you don't have a, a teacher by your side all the time. They would come over and show me how to pan fry trout for the trout pecan. They'd come over and show me how to do an omelet. And not all the omelets made it to the dining room. Let's Let's be honest about that, but because Mr. Dick checked every plate uh, that came out of that kitchen, every single shift. Um, but I learned how to saute, and once I got there, they left me there uh, on my own, and uh, it wasn't until a little later that I found out that was a two-person station as well, two backline saute chefs, so I must have been doing okay. <laughs> In 1979, while still executive chef at Commander's, Paul Prudhomme and his wife Kay opened their own restaurant on Charter Street in New Orleans' French Quarter, the soon-to-be-famous Kay Pauls. Frank had just gotten his feet wet at Commander's when Prudhomme called him over one morning to discuss a proposition. Another fateful Sunday morning. The chefs were late coming in, so I was frantically setting up the front line. I was carrying a big stack of plates, and chef was across the way at a, in his chair and watching me. And he said, Frank, come over here a minute. I came over there with a stack of plates. He said, how do you feel about saucers? And I said, um, I really like them. <laughs> he said, no, 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 let me rephrase that. How would you like to come work for me at K. Paul's and learn the nuances of sauce making? And I never heard of K. Paul's, Poppy. This was 79. How long had the restaurant been open? It had been open for about eight months for lunch only. Okay. And he and Kay wanted to uh, open for dinner. So he brought me over as the night chef. Oh. And... Um, you know, at that time, Paul was doing both jobs. He and he was so in love with Kay and she with him. And this was their baby, their project. So they wanted to expand in the dinner service, and he brought me over there. And I just said, yes, chef, you know, whatever he wanted me to do, I did. So that was it. And um, six years at Kay Paul's. And uh, I owe everything to Kay and Paul, everything, um, even, even my... Uh, marriage. One of the waitresses at K. Paul's was Sandy Hansen, who was friends with Kay and there from the start. The eldest of a trio of sisters, wherever Sandy went, her siblings were never far behind. One of them, Rhonda, would eventually come to work at K. Paul's. The other was Marna, who was a court reporter living in San Francisco. Frank had yet to meet Marna when the sisters came together one Christmas and greeted Frank at his second-floor French Quarter apartment. And they all pulled up in a car, the girls, the three sisters as they're known. 
Uh-huh. And uh, we were going somewhere. So I came out in the balcony, and Marna and I, our eyes met. And at that moment, we knew that was it. And she went back to San Francisco, packed up, and moved to New Orleans. Um, so that's how it all happened. And Marna and I have been married 37 years. During the first half of the 1980s, as K. Paul's worldwide reputation grew, so did Frank's role in the kitchen. Coming on board as the first night chef, he worked his way up the ranks to become executive chef there. Then, in 1986, after seven years working under the guidance of Paul Prudhomme, the master told Frank it was time to go. Yeah, he told me. Uh, he pulled me out of the kitchen one evening, and he and Kay were at his table in the back of the dining room. Frank, sit down. Uh, and they started talking, and uh, he said, I remember when I first interviewed you at Commanders, uh, I had asked you what you want out of life. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? And you said you thought you might want to have your own little place one day, and I, I did. And um, he said, we think you're ready. Um, Kay was sitting there smiling, and uh, Paul said, you know, we remember the time that you were cooking alone for dinner and you burned your hand real bad, and you, instead of walking out, you kept cooking with one hand and kept the other hand in the sink with ice milk in it um, so the restaurant didn't have to close. Uh, we remember when we went to New York for the Today Show and you were in charge and it snowed that day and the mayor wanted everybody to shut down, but you stayed open and you set a record, 250 covers, we remember that, and we want to pay you back. We want to we want to help you open a restaurant, and so they did. And uh, they set me up with a real estate agent, attorney, CPA, and uh, took about probably three months to find seven twenty three Dante Street. And when I opened that front door, I knew that was it. Uh, I knew immediately. The location Frank found was a tiny little cottage in the river bend with three dining rooms and little to no foot traffic. It felt like New Orleans to me, you know, like walking to someone's home. And I had eaten at Dante by the River, which was the existing restaurant there, and I knew the ambiance a little bit. But it was also the size that I wanted, you know, 55, 60 seats. Uh, that's what I was used to at K. Paul's, and I knew I could manage that. From the moment Brightston's restaurant opened in 1986, right up until today, Frank has offered a menu that builds on the culinary education he received from his mentor, Paul Prudhomme. To me, the beauty of, he's a Cajun, uh, the beauty of Cajun cooking is, is that it's not about expensive exotic ingredients. It's about very humble ingredients and what can you do to build flavor. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, Poppy, the way perception has changed over 36 years. You know, in the beginning, like our first big review from Gene Borg in the Times-Picayune, which was a lovely, glowing, five-bean review, and he used the words uh, reinventing Creole cuisine. Now, that was very flattering, um, and, and, and I was, I think, perceived as sort of the hot new kid on the block 
uh, to take Creole cuisine forward, which is a mantle I will gladly carry. But I, it kind of scared me a little bit, you know, because I'm just cooking what I like. <laughs> you know, people would ask me when we op- were getting ready to open the restaurant, Frank, what kind of restaurant is it going to be? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't have a PR team or advertising or anything like that. It's just me, a one-man gang. So my answer was, I just want to open a good New Orleans restaurant. Now, Poppy, you know what I mean by that. I know what I mean by that. I just wanted to get in there and start cooking. So 36 years later, uh, the new kid on the block is now viewed as the keeper of the tradition. And I like that mantle even more. Coming up next... Our conversation with Frank Brightston continues as we talk about his passion for teaching the power of food to new generations of chefs. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Do your red beans cook up so creamy because they're cooked in Grandma's bean pot? Or is it her wooden spoon that makes them so special? Camellia Brand wants to honor your family's culinary keepsakes during their upcoming centennial. Share your treasures by emailing images and stories to me at poppy at poppytooker.com and we'll make sure you're part of the celebration. you're just joining us, we've been speaking with celebrated New Orleans chef, Frank Brightston. After seven years apprenticing under Paul Prudhomme, Frank opened Brightston's restaurant in 1986 to critical acclaim, both locally and nationally. Following Katrina, Frank began to see that Creole and Cajun cuisine was in danger of disappearing in Louisiana. Motivated by the role mentorship played in his own life, Frank has been training new generations of chefs in the culinary high school program at the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, known as NOCA, and at Nichols State University in Thibodeau, Louisiana. 
you sought out the job at Nichols State. They didn't come for you. That's right. Uh, I called my good friend Randy Sheremy, and I said, Randy, um, I, I want to come teach. Uh, do you have a spot for me? He said, oh, yeah, Frank, man, we need somebody to teach classic French. We need somebody to do stocks. I said, no, 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 no. wait, wait, wait. I'm not looking for a job. I want to teach my stuff, the stuff I learned from Chef Paul. Uh, so they, uh, with the late Alton Duty, who was dean at the school at the time, um, we had a meeting up there, and Alton said, just make this happen. Um, and they did. So they carved out a niche for me called uh, Contemporary Creole Acadian Cuisine. Uh-huh. And I'm still teaching today. I do it in the fall. It's one night a week. Uh, and I love it because it keeps this cuisine going, um, and it allows me to meet such wonderful, bright, young people um, that want to uh, learn about our industry and our culture. You have also decided to extend your reach to high school students. Let's talk about NOCA. Yeah. Sally Perry, who is the director of the NOCA Institute, knocked on my door one day and asked me if I wanted to be the uh, chef in residence at NOCA. And I secretly said, yes, <laughs> because I, I, I had heard about this project and uh, I was dead set that I was the man for the job. And so that also has been unbelievably rewarding. I view NOCA as, I call it a sandbox. Uh. Put them in there, whatever discipline they want, and let them learn and get exposed to all this beauty in the world and let them become who they want to be. And it's, it's lovely to watch. Are there any other things about mentoring that come to mind as moments that have been particularly fulfilling to you? Well, I, honestly, I see it every day. Um, my kitchen is something I call my happy place. Um, and my favorite activity, Poppy, is just to be in the kitchen, not working, just standing watching, watching my staff do their work um, and teaching them, you know, bringing up the young ones uh, that need experience. I have a 16-year-old working part-time right now. He just turned 16 this week. <laughs> And just teaching them things, you know, how to plate a dessert, how to fry, how to sharpen a knife. It's, you know, it, it's the most gratifying thing in the world. And it's my mission in life at this point in my life and career is to share and do for them what Chef Paul Perdome did for me. Chef Frank Brightston of Brightston's Restaurant and keeper of the New Orleans food tradition. Hi, I'm Bea Bradsell from the Drink Cabinet and um, my father was Dick Bradsell, the creator of the Espresso Martini and Bramble. B. Bradsell's famous father, Richard, better known as Dick Bradsell, was a pioneering force in the UK cocktail scene. 
he created several brand new cocktails, most notably the espresso martini. Sadly, a brain tumor claimed Dick's life in 2016 when he was a mere 56. But his legacy lives on through B and his famous cocktails. He had this crazy ability that I've seen in very few bartenders since where he had a great memory for flavor. So he could taste something and know the drink that he wanted it to be in. And he could basically work out in his head the flavor that he wanted. And he he just would create the recipe in his head rather than playing around and doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He would just design it in his head. And then he had very good muscle memory for where everything was in the bar. So he would then just grab everything, put it into the shaker, and out would come this flavor. And I would see brand ambassadors come into the bar and bring him new products all the time. And just he would come out with these incredible drinks just immediately. And it's also how he liked to start every shift. He would make a fresh lemonade because you you know how to balance the rest of your menu because you know what your lemon juice and your sugar is like that day. And you know how it's working. within. so you know how to rebalance everything that day because you've got that base ready to go. For people who may not know who Dick Bradsell was, in many ways, he's sort of the Dale DeGroff of Great Britain, isn't he? Yeah, that's a comparison that gets made quite a lot. Um, so there wasn't really a kind of mainstream cocktail scene in the UK before my dad came along. There were beautiful um, hotel bars, um, but you know your average person on the street would not have any um, access to cocktails at all. You had a few members bars and things that were starting to do them, but it was very much wine at dinner, beer and pink gins at the pub. And then my dad kind of didn't see a reason why everyone couldn't have had them. So he, he made it his mission to really bring cocktails to the people. And now you can't move for cocktail bars in the UK. What year was that that his mission began? He moved to London in the late 70s, and that's kind of, he really became passionate about it around then. But when he got some of the ropes down and started really getting enough knowledge to start doing his own thing, was probably in around 1982, 1983. If people were to identify him with one drink, it would be the espresso martini. So the espresso martini definitely today is the drink that he's become best known for. I mean, at least in the UK, it got big in 2016 and then over here much more recently. But he created it decades before it really got famous. I've got it down to, I think it's about 1984. It was created at Bart called the Soho Brasserie, um, which was right in the heart of Soho. So he was working at kind of the new, newest, trendiest bar. Um, and at the time, David Bowie was filming a um, film called Absolute Beginners and it was filmed in the street. So like, Anyone that was anyone was coming to Soho to try and get a glimpse of David Bowie, as you would. And then most of the cast, they had like lots of walk-on scenes. Just everyone was around and they were very busy. And they'd had a new coffee machine installed. And what happens when you have a new bit of kit installed is no one knows how to use it and everything becomes a mess. So the bar was absolutely covered in coffee grinds because they were still working out what they were doing. And then a young model 
which uh, was a model he took to the grave. He never told anyone what the name of the model was. Um, but a young um, model came in and asked for a drink to wake her up and uh, <laughs> swear word her up. <laughs> <laughs> With the bar already covered in coffee um, and vodka being the trendiest spirit of the time, the gin renaissance had not quite happened yet. Um, he basically threw coffee liqueur, espresso, a little bit of sugar and um, vodka into a shaker, shook it up and poured it out on the rocks. And that was the original vodka espresso. Quite a little bit different to what we know today. Um, it took him a few more years. He he took it with him to kind of every bar he worked at. He knew it was a flavor profile that worked. He knew people enjoyed it. So in probably about 1999 was when he finally found his perfect recipe, which is um, the espresso martini that we know and love today, which was a shaken drink served straight up with some espresso beans as garnish. One of the more fascinating things I discovered about Dick Bradsell was that he occasionally liked to dress as a woman. I asked B to give her thoughts on her father's apparel choices. I think he was he was a rebel. He was an anarchist, a self-described anarchist. Um, he liked to shock people and do the most shocking thing he could, which quite often was dressing as a woman. Um, no kind of wondering about his gender. He was, you know, very happily a man, but liked the experience of dressing up as a woman. And he liked the response that he got from people. And that was a conversation starter. Also, like, he could kind of hide his own personality behind this big conversation. So he could, he was a very, very private person working in a very public field. And he, he loved creating the party, but he also kept himself very much to himself. So having this, being so boisterous and flamboyant and out there in this dress kind of almost created a little bubble for him. Um, he also loved creating spaces for people that were a little lost and wanted to dress up. Like so, he, a couple of bars we worked at, he created these bar nights that people could come to and have a safe space. It was a mad world to grow up into, but kind of I didn't know any better. It was just kind of what I grew up in, so I always knew it. Oh, B, wouldn't <laughs> he just fit in New Orleans? I think he would absolutely love it. A lot of when people talk about dad, a lot of what comes up is the drinks because he did have so many amazing, unique drinks. But for him and a lot of people that worked with him, the drinks were just a very small element of a larger experience. He saw himself kind of almost as like a conductor of an, a night out and drinks were an amazing part of that and creating drinks that people would enjoy. That's what he wanted to do. But he was curating this night out for people. So always having the perfect playlist, how to kind of watch a room and know exactly what was going on at all times. A line that comes up all the time that, you know, everything's fun and games until your fun and games ruins someone else's night out. Um, he said it more succinctly than that. But it was kind of this idea that if you're getting too drunk and ruining everyone night, nights out, it's terrible for everyone else. So he, he was actually very good at kicking people out of places. Mm. But he, yeah, he curated this night out and having good service and having front of house and having everything. You know, he would think about things not just in terms of the venue. He would be like, 
think about someone's entire journey. Is there a tube strike today? Is there a problem with the buses? Is there some building works that they've got to walk around that they've then had to have a really annoying journey to get here? What's happening at the door? What's happening at every single stage before they sit down? Because that is as much a part of the experience as what drinks you're serving them. Because that whole day comes into it. And he is like, that's kind of how his mind went. It was like the drinks were such a small part of the whole experience. Incredible. What an amazing talent and such a wonderful story. I'm so grateful for you coming to speak with us. Thank you, B. Thank you, Poppy. It's so lovely to be here. That was B. Bradzell from the Drink Cabinet and daughter of the infamous cocktail creator, Dick Bradsell. What is treacle? And what does that have to do with Dick Bradsell? Stay tuned, and we'll tell you all about it when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans' French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Fall on Louisiana's North Shore brings outdoor festivals and lots of holiday events. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is treacle, and what does that have to do with dick Bradsell. Treacle is the British name for what Americans know as blackstrap molasses. You Harry Potter fans may remember treacle tart as the young wizard's favorite dessert. Dick Bradsell made a play on those sweet childhood memories when he created the treacle, which is basically a dark rum old-fashioned with a float of apple juice on top. Dick preferred using a dark brown apple juice to mimic Treacle's color. It's a perfect fall drink and one I'm guessing you'll love. You'll find a recipe for Dick Bradsell's Treacle on our website, poppytooker.com. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats.
I am Mason Hereford, the owner, and some still say the chef, uh, but not really, of Turkey and the Wolf and Molly's Rise and Shine here in New Orleans. Mason Hereford's restaurants, Turkey and the Wolf and Molly's Rise and Shine, have caused quite a stir here in New Orleans. At the former, what was once a mundane meal like a fried bologna sandwich is transformed into a culinary work of art. And the national critics have taken notice. In 2017, Bon Appetit magazine named Turkey and the Wolf America's Best New Restaurant. This honor, among others, has also turned Chef Mason Hereford into a culinary celebrity. Some months back, Mason joined us to talk about his cookbook, Turkey and the Wolf, Flavor Trippin' in New Orleans. Mason's back again to discuss his journey as a chef, his rise to fame, and hopes for the future. So, Mason, how did you come to New Orleans in the first place? What are you doing here? Hmm, that's a good question. I am not someone who grew up knowing much about New Orleans. Um, I grew up in Free Union, Virginia, which is a small town outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, right in the middle of the state. Uh, It wasn't until I moved here right after going to college in Virginia that I immediately found out that New Orleans is perhaps the most special place on earth and that I would almost certainly live there the rest of my life. So you came here, and I I don't know what you did initially. Was Doorman at Fat Harry's your first job? It was my first job. So the first month I lived in New Orleans— I applied to every joint that was open on St. Charles and Magazine Street because that was like the two streets I knew of, sort of the main thoroughfares. I got a lot of no's. I think I got a yes from Reginelli's and I got a yes from Fat Harry's because I actually had a friend that used to work there. And then I started to be the door guy. But Mason, you're not like a big hulking <laughs> dude. Hey, I've been trying. You know, I, I, I eat well. I've, I've worked out historically uh, more than once. Um, but no. Uh, I was not so much as a bouncer as a guy who looked for the number on the ID and then let people through the door. That was a fun job. Oh, man, the best. (laughs) That was the best. I also learned how to cook at Fat Harry's. Uh, How did that happen? So in college, I mean, I don't know if I made much more than pouring milk over cereal or, uh, you know, boiling pasta or things like that. At Fat Harry's, I got a job in the door. And then after a couple months, I ended up in the kitchen and they were, you know, they do things from scratch there. So we were, you know, if you, somebody orders chicken tenders, you chop a piece of chicken and bread it and fry it, um, you know, and you cooking burgers occasionally to temp. You know, there's some good stuff to learn there. And um, that's what made me decide, like, oh, maybe I should go find, you know, because uh, that's more of a bar, like a, a real restaurant. Not they're not a real restaurant. So there was a manager who used to work at Fat Harry's now – I think he works at Katie's in Mid-City, but his name's Joe Trippy, and he taught me, like, really great kitchen tricks. One day we had a soft-shell crab special. I learned how to fry a crab. He taught me how to make a barbecue shrimp and a hollowed-out pistolet, which was not something on the menu, just sort of uh, teaching me fun tricks and kind of got me addicted to the, the cooking scene. But what really got me in there was the service industry knows how to party, and I was really into the party. Still am. Uh, still, you know, New Orleans. So you end up at Coquette? I mean, this is like yeah. James Beard talk. So right. tell me about your culinary school 
a.k.a. Coquette. Yeah, I guess that was sort of – I mean, I learned so much at that restaurant. There was a small kitchen team with room for upward mobility with a frequently changing menu, uh, you know, buying vegetables right off the truck. There was just so much room to, to learn uh, in that kitchen. So how long were you at Coquette? Maybe six and a half years. And I, I started making salads or garbage. You know, I eventually got to the grill and eventually became a sous chef. And then the last three years or so I was there, I was the chef de cuisine. So the cool part about that was having menu autonomy and getting to see the reaction of guests to flavors that I had created, which gave me a lot of confidence to go do something on my own after working at Coquette. So that was your background. Fat Harry's, Coquette, yeah. boom. Why a sandwich shop? What was it about your concept that you stuck on? It was always going to be a sandwich shop. I think I figured that out long before I was ready to venture out on my own or had the confidence to try to figure that out. New Orleans has really good, iconic New Orleans sandwiches. They've got po' boys. They've got muffaladas. Uh, they've got by me, but there, it, where I grew up, there was like these sandwich shops, like whether it be a deli, uh, that was mostly sandwiches, not so much like a, a New York or Philly deli like Stein's, but there were just places where their menu was sandwiches. And I didn't see that here so much as I saw badass po' boy joints and what I wanted to, I, I, I just saw that there was room for it and, I had taken a liking for years at the lunch, on the lunch menu at Coquette of putting sort of higher end or more interesting ingredients on sandwiches. You opened Turkey and the Wolf when? August of 2016. Well, you have really put that spot on Jackson Avenue on the map. It's um, You've just created such a stir. Uh, we are very proud to have the group of people I work with and myself are very proud to have what seems to be one of the most overrated sandwich shops of all time. And we say that with, uh, I mean, it's great. It's a great thing for us, but it's, it's blown up wildly and it is all because of the people that work there. In my opinion, what do you attribute your success with your crew to? Uh, I don't know how to perfectly answer that, but I will say that we spend a lot of time together and they are my best friends. Like I don't have a, I don't have a huge slew of friends that aren't my colleagues cause we do spend 40 hours a week together. Um, we, we like the, I guess the mantra of the whole restaurant more than cooking delicious food or anything like that is try to have a good time with the people around you at work. Um, and we've made that clear at the very beginning, long before we were able to pay everybody what we've now been able to do. There was a, that first year before we got some of this um, sort of baked in clientele from uh, national media recognition. We always focused on the party more than anything else, anything else and made sure we were having a good time. And I think that is sort of the idea. But we do have the opening crew still intact six years later. Mason. Back to um, you getting so firmly planted here in New Orleans on the map. When did people from all over the place start coming to New Orleans and specifically seeking you out? They say, a few people say they do that. I don't know if I believe it. But it's an honor if it's true. 
And uh, so there's two two things have happened that send a lot of customers our way. One is right at the end of our first year, uh, Bon Appetit named us the best new restaurant in America, and they put a number next to it. They put number one next to it, which is it, it, it to the point where it, it upset a few people. They're like, "That's not fair. That's a sandwich shop. That's." crap and i was like you know they do have a point but we it was it was an incredible thing i i'm not trying to discount that we got this massive honor but it was still it was surprising to say the least and when people saw that some people disliked it some people loved it regardless what they did see was here's a restaurant that just got rated the number one best new restaurant and it doesn't take reservations all you got to do is go hop in line and order a sandwich it made it very accessible. It wasn't a tasting menu that you had to get a reservation and the books would get uh, filled up and then you'd have to wait your turn. You could just show up. So two days after that came about, we had a line of 80 people lined up in front of our restaurant when we opened. I think the longest our line had ever been was maybe 20 people uh, before that. And we realized we had to change everything about what we did to be able to serve that many people um, if we wanted to keep the like sort of integrity of our food. And it was a, a wild experience. What were some of the things that you had to change? Well, we had to increase the number of employees. The number the team, <laughs> the size of the team had to increase immediately. Um, we went from cooking with three cooks in the kitchen to four to cook to just like on the line, plus more prep cooks. And we immediately started selling out early that we decided for the short term, we would close at night and we would start closing at 5 p.m. And once we could get, we got our footing, we would reopen at night. Six years later, now we close at 4 p.m. because we realized that it's a better life to just not work at night. And if we, if we can make ends meet, um, then we'll just keep the, the team small and working at night is is something that you have to do at every service industry job, and it's kind of nice having one where you don't have to. Brilliant, brilliant stroke between that <laughs> and you. the breakfast restaurant. You know, We do not work at night. You have a pretty good life, I imagine, for a restaurant owner. Yeah, thanks. Mason, what's going to happen next? We, we have two restaurant concepts that we hopefully are going to find a building and one of them will go into, and either Nate Barfield or Phil Sinak, uh, they're kind of co-chefs from Turkey and the Wolf, will be running one of those restaurants. Um, Colleen Quarles was the opening chef de cuisine of Turkey and the Wolf, and now she is the chef at Molly's Rise and Shine. Her co-chef, uh, who's also the pastry chef, is Elizabeth Hollinger. Hopefully Colleen and Liz will become partners at Molly's and, and share ownership there. So we got some big things on the horizon. To have more than one restaurant is to not run two restaurants. And I'm in a position where I am very involved, but I do not run either restaurant. The The team runs the restaurant and the managers, you know, manage the people. And it. The, if I were to go away for a year, I do not think the quality would diminish or the food would change in any way. Um, they run without me. So to say the restaurants are my restaurants is, is incorrect. It's more, more so that everybody's restaurant, you know. That was Mason Hereford, the chef behind Turkey and the Wolf and Molly's Rise and Shine in New Orleans. 
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Halloween is just around the corner, and Tujac's Restaurant is hosting the annual Poppy's Pop-Up Halloween Drag Brunch on Sunday, October 30th. For a hauntingly good time, reservations may be made online and by calling 504-525-8676. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. Don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, and the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. And from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.